It is now my privilege to introduce tonight's speaker. President Boyd K. Packer, the President of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was set apart to this position on February 3, 2008. Previously, he was acting President of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles beginning June 5, 1994. Prior to becoming acting President, he served as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, having been ordained an Apostle on April 9, 1970. Earlier, he served for almost nine years as an assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. An educator by profession, his career includes service as supervisor of seminaries and institutes of religion for the Church and as a member of the Administrative Council of Brigham Young University. He studied at Weber College and subsequently received his Bachelor of Science and Master of Science degrees from Utah State University. He received a doctorate in educational administration from Brigham Young University. President Packer was born September 10, 1924, in Brigham City, Utah. He served as a bomber pilot during World War II in the Pacific Theater. President Packer served as president of the New England Mission. He is author of a number of books and other published works. He is an artist, particularly of birds. He is married to the former Donna Smith. They are the parents of ten children. I am very grateful for the blessing which allow you to see me and hear from across the earth. I am most grateful for the gift of the Holy Ghost, a miracle which requires no satellite transmission and allows me to picture you in your many places in my mind's eye. You are consummately precious. We look forward to the day when we can pass the keys of the kingdom on to you. Rather than take notes, pay attention to the impressions you receive as we consider a most sacred topic. If all that you know after tonight is what you hear, then you will have missed the meaning of this discussion. Some come with the questions and searching for direction. Others are wondering how they got off the track of the gospel and how they might get back on it again and return. While I speak to all, I speak most earnestly to the one who is seeking. I have watched my senior brethren move around the circle and then graduate to the other side of the veil. So many great ones. President Harold B. Lee told me that I should associate with the older brethren and learn from their experiences. I followed that counsel from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The lives of great men all remind us that we should make, we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footsteps on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing shall take heart again. These footprints on the sands of time will always remain visible to help guide you. When I was a young member of the Quorum of the Twelve, we walked from our weekly temple meeting back to the offices. I would linger behind and walk with Elder LeGrand Richard. He'd been somewhat crippled in an accident in his youth and watched 
rather slowly. The other brethren would say, you are so kind to take care of Brother Richards. And I would answer, you don't know why I do it. As I walked, I listened. He could remember President Wilford Woodruff. He was 12 the last time he heard President Wilford Woodruff speak. Elder Richards was a link to that generation. I absorbed every word he spoke. There's a charge given to the Twelve in the Doctrine and Covenants. <clears throat> the Twelve traveling councils are called to be the Twelve Apostles, are special witnesses to the name of Christ in all the world. I've had an unquenchable desire to bear testimony of the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Christ said, If ye have heard, known me, ye would have known the Father. I've yearned to tell what I know about the Christ and the, about the Father, who the Father is and who the Son is. I know words carried by the gift of the Holy Ghost can bring to your understanding the truth of all things. All truth is worth knowing. Some truths are more useful, but there are some truths that are most worth knowing. I have asked young missionaries, do you know what the word father means? They say, of course they do. I respect that answer, but deep down I think you know so very little. They do not know what the word father means but their knowledge is immature. To you who are married and have a child, the word father takes on a new meaning, and the word father comes into clear focus. Perhaps there will someday come a day when the doctor will tell you, I think you're not going to keep this one. Finally, you learn about the father and about yourself. We'd been married for nine years when we first heard those words from the doctor. I'm afraid you're not going to keep this one. As parents, we looked at our tiny baby son and did the only thing we could do. We named and gave him a father's blessing in the hospital. We prayed and had faith and said aloud, Thy will be done. Hours passed away, and then days. The doctors and nurses continued to work with our son. At last, we heard the words from the doctor, I believe you will keep this one. As precious as parents we know, and grew to understand the strength and drew closer to each other and to the Father. Thirteen years later, in a much larger hospital, that experience was repeated with our tenth child. He was given a name and a father's blessing in the hospital. We prayed and had faith and once again said aloud, Thy will be done. Hours crept slowly by and once again we were greatly blessed. He would live. The lesson learned years before had been repeated. Such experiences will teach you what the father and mother mean. 
then you know what that you would give your life if that little son could live to experience mortal life. You then can begin to understand our Heavenly Father, to know what the words father and mother mean. Many times I have yearned to relieve the suffering of a child or ease the grief of or pain from someone that I love only to realize that I could not do that. But I've learned that the fact that I would do it if I could was of great consequence in my relationship to the Lord. There's a puzzle in the scriptures about justice and mercy. These two words, seemingly conflicting principles, which I addressed on another occasion in something of a parable. Listen carefully. There once was a man who wanted something very much. It seemed more important than anything else in his life. In order for him to have his desire, he incurred a great debt. He had been warned about going into that much debt and particularly about the creditor. But it seemed so important to him to do what he wanted and to have what he wanted right now. He was sure he could pay for it later. So he signed a contract with the lender. He would pay it off sometime along the way. He did not worry too much about it for the due date seemed such a long time away. And he had what he wanted now. And that was what seemed important. The lender, our creditor, was always somewhere in the back of his mind, and he made token payments now and again, thinking somehow that the day of reckoning never would really come. But as it always does, the day came, and uh, the contract fell due. The debt had not been paid. His creditor appeared and demanded full payment. Only then did he realize that the creditor had not only power to pass all that he owned, but power to cast him into debt or prison. I cannot pay you for I have not the power to do so, he confessed. Then said the creditor, we will enforce the contract, take your possessions, and you will go to prison. You agreed to that. It was your choice. You signed the contract, and now it must be enforced. Can you not show mercy? Can you not extend the time or forgive the debt? The debtor begged, arrange some way for me to keep what I have and not go to prison. Will you not be merciful? Surely you believe in mercy. The creditor replied, mercy is always so one-sided. It would serve only you. If I show mercy to you, it will leave me unpaid. It is justice that I demand. Do you believe in justice? I believe in justice. I did when I signed the contract, the debtor said. It was on my side then. I thought it would protect me. I did not need mercy. 
did not think I should ever need it. Justice, I thought, would serve both of us equally well. It is justice that demands that you pay the contract or suffer the penalty, the creditor replied. That is the law. You have agreed to it, and that is the way it must be. There they were, one meeting out justice and the other pleading for mercy. Neither could be, but could prevail except at the expense of the other. If you do not forgive the debt, there will be no mercy. The debtor pleaded, if I do, there will be no justice, was the reply. Both laws, it seemed, could not be served. Mercy cannot rub justice. The scriptures tell us that. Each is an eternal ideal that appears to contradict the other. If there is no way for justice to be fully served, and mercy also, is there no way? There is a way. The law of justice can be fully satisfied and mercy can be fully extended, but it takes someone else. And so it happened this time. The debtor had a friend. He came to help. He knew the debtor to be short-sighted. He thought him foolish to have gotten himself into that predicament. Nevertheless, he wanted to help because he loved him. He stepped between them as a mediator and made this offer to the, to the creditor. I will pay the debt if you will free the debtor from his contract so that he may keep his possessions and not go to prison. As the creditor was pondering the offer, the mediator added, You demanded justice. Although he cannot pay you, I will do so. You will have been justly dealt with. Can you can ask no more. That uh, would not be just. The meteor then turned to the debtor. If I pay your debt, will you accept me as your creditor? Oh, yes, cried the debtor. You saved me from prison and show mercy to me. Then said the mediator, you will pay the debt to me, and I will set the terms. It will not be easy, but it will be possible. I will provide a way, and you need not go to prison. And so it was. The creditor was paid in full. He had been justly dealt with. No contract had been broken. The debtor, in turn, had been extended mercy. Both laws stood fulfilled because there was a mediator. Justice had claimed its full share, and mercy was fully satisfied. Unless there is a mediator, unless we have a friend, the full weight of justice, untempered, unsympathetic, and positively must fall on us. The full penalty for every transgression, however minor or however deep, will be exacted from us to the uttermost farthing. There is a mediator, a redeemer, 
who stands both willing and able to appease the demands of justice and extend mercy to those who are penitent, for he offers himself as a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law and to all those who have broken hearts and contrite spirits, and to none else can the ends of the law be answered. All will one day stand before him to be judged at the last judgment day, according to their works. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the Christ Jesus. Through him, mercy can be fully extended, and each of us, without offending the eternal law of justice, can receive mercy. The extension of mercy will not be automatic. It will come through covenant with him. It will be on his terms, his generous terms. To activate his mercy, we must repent. Our transgressions are all added to our account. And one day, if it is not properly settled, unless we have repented, we will be found wanting and stand condemned. We all live on spiritual credit. In one way or another, the account builds and builds. If you pay it off as you go, you have little need to worry. Soon you begin to learn discipline and know that there is a day of reckoning ahead. Learn to keep your spiritual account paid off at regular intervals rather than allowing it to collect interest and penalties. Because you are being tested, it is expected that you'll make some mistake. I assume that you have done things in your life that you regret things that you cannot even apologize for. Therefore, you carry a burden. It is time now to use the word guilt, which can stain like indelible ink and cannot easily be washed away. A stepchild of guilt is disappointment, regret for lost blessings and opportunities. If you are struggling with guilt, You're not unlike the people of the Book of Mormon, to whom the prophet said, because of their iniquity, the church began to disbelieve in the spirit of uh, prophecy and the spirit of revelation. And the judgments of God did stare them in the face. We often try to solve the problems of guilt by telling one another that uh, it doesn't matter and uh, trying to tell us ourselves the same thing. But somehow deep down inside we do not believe that. Nor do we believe ourselves if we say, because we know better, it does matter. Prophets have always taught repentance. Alma said, behold, He cometh to redeem those who will be baptized and to repentance through faith in his name. Alma bluntly told his wayward son, Now repentance could not come unto men except there were a punishment, 
which was eternal as the life of the soul would be, a fixed opposite to the plan of happiness. There are two basic purposes for mortal life. The first is to receive a body which can be exalted in time. It will be purified and we will live forever. The second purpose is to be tested. In testing, we certainly will make mistakes. But if we can learn from our mistakes, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us, the scriptures tell us. You perhaps may feel inferior in mind or body and are troubled or burdened by the weight of some spiritual account that is marked past due. When you come face to face with yourself in those moments of quiet contemplation, which many of us try to avoid, there are some unsettled things. Do they bother you? Do you have something on your conscience? Are you still, to one degree or another, guilty of anything small or large? Too frequently we receive letters from those who have made tragic mistakes and are burdened. They beg, can I ever be forgiven? Can I ever change? The answer is yes. Paul taught the Corinthians, there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will not suffer you to be tempted about what you are able to stand. You will be able to overcome those temptations. He'll make a way for you to escape that you may be able to bear it. The gospel teaches us that Relief from torment and guilt can be earned through repentance. Save those few, those very few, who defect to perdition after having known a fullness. There is no habit, no addiction, no rebellion, no transgression, no offense, large or small, which is exempt from the promise of complete forgiveness. No matter what is happening in to you in your life, the Lord has prepared a way for you to come back if you will heed the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Some are filled with a compelling urge, a temptation that recycles in the mind, perhaps to become a habit, and then an addiction. We're prone to some transgressions and sin, also a rationalization that we have no guilt because we were born that way. We become trapped and hence comes the pain and torment that only the Savior can heal. If you have the power to stop and you do have the power to stop, you will be redeemed. President Marion Dirami told me once, don't tell them so they can understand Tell them so that they cannot misunderstand. Nephi said, My soul delighteth in the plainness, for after this manner doth the Lord work among the children of men. 
For the Lord God giveth light unto the understanding. So listen up. I'll speak plainly as one called under the obligation to do so. You know that there's an adversary. The scriptures define him in these terms. That old serpent the, who is the devil, the father of all lies. He was cast out in the beginning and denied a mortal body. He has now sworn to disrupt the great plan of happiness and become an enemy to all righteousness. He focuses his attacks on the family. He, uh, you will know one day, some of you, that the scourge of pornography, which is sweeping across the world, it's hard to escape. Pornography is focused on that part of your nature through which you have the power to beget life. To indulge in pornography leads to difficulties, divorce, disease, troubles of a dozen kinds. There is no part of all of it that is innocent. To collect, view, or carry it around in any form is akin to keeping a rattlesnake in your backpack. It exposes you to the available, the equivalent of what the serpent snake strike would be, an injection of deadly venom. One can easily understand, with the world being what it is, that you can almost innocently be exposed to read it or to view it without realizing the terrible consequences. If that describes you, I warn you to stop it. Stop it now. The Book of Mormon teaches that all men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil, and that includes you. And uh, you know what is right and what is wrong. Be very careful not to cross that line. Although most mistakes can be confessed privately to the Lord, there are some transgressions that require uh, more than that to uh, bring about forgiveness. If your mistakes have been grievous ones, you must see your bishop. Otherwise, ordinary confession quietly and personally will do. But remember, that great morning of forgiveness does not always come all at once. It is at first, if at first you stumble and uh, do not give up, overcoming discouragement is part of the test. Do not give up, and as I have counseled before, once you have confessed and forsaken your sins, do not look back. The Lord always is there. He's willing to suffer and pay the penalty if you are willing to accept him as your redeemer. As mortals, we may not and cannot understand how he fulfilled his atoning sacrifice. But for now, the how is not so much of importance as the why of his suffering. Why did he do it for you and for me, for all humanity? He did it for the love of God the Father and all mankind. 
Greater love hath no man than this, that he may lay down his life for his friends. In Gethsemane, Christ went apart from his apostles to pray. Whatever transpired is beyond our comprehension to know. But we do know that he completed the atonement. He was willing to take upon himself the mistakes and the sins and the guilt and the doubt and the fears of all the world. He suffered for us that we would not have to suffer. Many mortals have suffered torment and died a painful, terrible death. But his agony surpassed all of them. At my age, I have come to know what physical pain is, and it's no fun. Nobody escapes this life without learning a thing or two about suffering. But the personal torment, or torment that I cannot bear is when I come to know that I've caused another to suffer. It is then I catch a glimpse of the agony of the Savior that he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. His suffering was different than all others before or since because he took upon him the penalty that had, all the penalties that had ever been imposed on the human family. <coughs> Imagine that. He had no debt to pay. He had not committed, he had committed no wrong. Nevertheless, an accumulation of all the guilt and grief and sorrow and pain and humiliation of all the mental, emotional, and physical torments known to man, he experienced them all. There's only been one in all the annals of human history who was entirely sinless and qualified to answer the sins of the transgression of all mankind and survive paying for them. He presented his life in essence said, and said, it is I that taketh upon me the sins of the world. He was crucified. He died. They could not take his life from him. He consented to die. If you have stumbled or ever been lost for a time, if you feel that the adversary now holds you captive, you can move forward with faith and not wander to and fro in the world any longer. There are those who stand ready to guide you back to peace and security. Even the grace of God, as promised in the scriptures, comes after all you can do. The possibility of this, to me, is the one truth most worth knowing. I promise that the brilliant morning of forgiveness can come. Then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, comes into your life once again. Something like a sunrise, and you and he will be. Remember your sins no more. Let me say that again. You and he will remember your sins no more. I uh, th th this really is what I've come to teach you who are in trouble. He will step in and solve the problems you cannot uh, solve, but you have to pay the price. It doesn't come without your doing that. 
he's a very kind ruler in the sense that he will always pay the price necessary, but he wants you to do what you should, even if it is painful. I love the Lord, and I love the Father who sent him. Our burdens of disappointment, sin, and guilt can be laid before him, and on his generous terms, each item on the account can be marked, paid in full. Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be crimson, they shall be as wool. That is, Isaiah continued, if you are willing and obedient. The scripture, learn wisdom in thy youth, yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God, is an invitation attended by the promise of peace and protection from the adversary. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believer in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. <clears throat> Do not expect that all will go smoothly. Throughout your life, even those who are living as they should, sometimes will find it just the opposite. It won't go smoothly. Meet each of life's challenges with the optimism and surety that you will have peace and faith to sustain you now and in the future. For those who do not yet have all the blessings you feel you want, if your life is empty in one reason or another, you need to have, you can't don't have the things that you need to have. I firmly believe that no experience, no opportunity essential for redemption and salvation will be denied you who live faithfully. Remain worthy. Be hopeful, patient, and prayerful. Things have a way of working out. The gift of the Holy Ghost will guide you and direct your actions. If you are one of those struggling with guilt, disappointment, or depression as a result of mistakes, you've made or blessings that you have not yet come, waiting and waiting and they have not yet come. Listen to the reassuring teachings found in the closing hymn, which the choir will sing at the close of the meeting. I claim with my brethren to be an apostle. We hold the keys. We are special witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. That witness is confirmed each time. I feel it in myself and in others, the cleansing effect of the sacred sacrifice. My witness and that of my brethren is true. We know the Lord. He is no stranger to his prophets and seers and revelators. And in closing, knowing that I know you as the youth of the church, Understand that you're not perfect, but you're moving along that road. Have the courage and know that any person who has a body has power over one who has not. Satan was denied the body. 
So if ever you are confronted with temptations, know that you rank, outrank all those temptations if you will exercise the agency given to Adam and Eve in the garden and passed on to this very generation. I invoke a blessing upon you that life will be full, that you can find peace, and that you look forward to the hope and desire to do that which the Lord would have you do. And that is all that's expected. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.